All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of On The Margin. This is a special episode of On The Margin, and you're going to find out why in just a couple of seconds here. But today I'm joined by Weston Nakamura. Weston, welcome to the show. Ipilito-san, how are you, sir? <laughs> that always makes me smile when you call me that. Um, so <laughs> I, I want to give a little bit of context for this. So I want everyone uh, listening uh, to welcome. Weston is actually the newest member of the BlockWorks team, which I am super, super excited about. And the reason this is a special episode is because we are debuting his own podcast, which is called Market Depth. Um, and we've got some very specific reasons why we're Weston, excited to bring Weston on outside of the fact that he's just a great chap and we're excited to have him on the team. Weston, you want to say a couple of words about uh, Market Depth, the podcast? Absolutely. So first of all, uh, thank you um, personally, Mike, for uh, bringing me on, for having the vision uh, to create market depth um, with me. And so the reason that uh, I'm so humbled and blessed to join BlockWorks team is to launch the show Market Depth. What is Market Depth? So basically, in a nutshell, as far as global macro is concerned, we all get more or less the same markets, right? We get the same, you know, euro, dollar, FX cross. We get the same, you know, e-mini futures. We get the same gold, whatever it, whatever it is, right? Um, and so we don't really need yet another podcast to, to comment on on those sort of you know inflation or, or whatever it is what we need and by we i mean like you know those of you in the united states and europe uh what you need is a different angle a different perspective to look at markets from that 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 are missing and so what i'm going to do is in market depth i'm going to basically uh comment on markets mostly market price action and, and things like that but market developments but also bigger picture themes from the standpoint of me being in Asia. And it really matters for several reasons, which we can get into in depth. Uh, but to look at it from the Asia perspective, um, you know, looking at the same markets through that lens, and you have that additional weapon. Um, and it's just frankly, something that's completely missing out there. And I think that people don't might not even know that they need it until they have it. And then once they have it, hopefully, they will not be able to, you know, exist in markets without it. Uh, Weston, I'm in complete agreement with you there. Listeners of On The Margin, if you listen to any of the, uh, this is something we've talked about on the show a number of times, but if you've listened to any of the interviews that we've did um, with Leland from the China Beige Book, one of the caveats that we always talk about on the show is we are talking about this from the perspective, from the American and the Western perspective here. And there's often something that we're missing by not having someone on the ground over in Asia, which is uh, one of the many reasons, Weston, why I'm super excited to bring you on the show. The other thing, I think, uh, just a little detail to add for listeners is this is going to be airing um, early in the morning. So often I will wake up and I'll have to wait uh, for things to go live. But for all you traders out there, Obviously, you know that one of the first things that you do is check what happened in markets overnight in Asia because it gives you some indication of where things are going today. So that's another another reason why I'm super, super excited for the show. Yeah. Um, with regards to that, too, um, of course, there's like pre-market media you know, coverage and all that kind of thing, right? But the weird thing is, so I was in, uh, so I'm originally from New York. And so I went back to New York for the first time since, um, you know, pre-COVID uh, in uh, this past October. And I was only there for a very short time, but I was trying my best to actually just be a, a retail investor, if you will, and just try to see if what happened overnight in Asia. And there isn't really any discussion of it. It's what's ahead for the U.S. trading day that day. Mm. But if some massive PBOC you know, uh, event occurred or announcement or something, they might you know, like kind of touch on that, but then they'll just completely uh, sort of brush it off. And that can like uh, th th there's that huge sort of, like vacuum, and so it, it's it's really kind of um, 
an incredible amount of like information arm that can be exploitable certainly but it's certainly like something like things that you cannot you know not know and the other thing to, too i'll say is that um with regards to just generally about market price action and stuff like that a lot of longer term investors might not think that that matters like price action and all that um here's what i'll say uh it does matter if you are a longer term investor as well for you as well and so you know market depth uh i'm gonna be mostly commenting on you know what happened during that asia uh, trading day across asset classes, FX, equities, you know, single stocks, uh, rates, um, commodities, so on and so forth, crypto. Um, but, you know, the reason that you need to, to care is because you need to understand, like, what, you know, what is driving what. Um, and and there are, that comes down to kind of like a granular intraday level. So you don't have to necessarily be executing an order or something like that, but you mm. do need to know what is moving what. A perfect example, really, is just a moment ago when we just got the CPI print out of the U.S. The yeah. markets move. Um, well, it seems that markets currently aren't moving on CPI as as opposed to every other CPI print where you saw huge moves. And that might mm. be because there's another driver that has introduced itself in the last few days. Right. So mm. that's uh, if that the age version of that is what I would kind of, you know, say, like, yeah, this happened, this kind of driver. Normally, this da- da- data would drive things. However, it did not. Um, and markets were still, and that's, you know, nothing happening is information as well. Yeah, absolutely. Weston. Although I will say that crypto is taking off like a rocket ship, which is my market that I watch pretty closely. Now, what I want to do is, uh, actually give listeners a taste basically of what it's going to be like uh, tuning into market depth. And specifically, I want to focus on a couple of the topics du jour, right? That everyone is focused on over here in America and kind of get your, your unique spin. And uh, the the one that obviously comes to mind, right, which is all the content that is being produced in the last week is about the implosion of Silicon Valley Bank. Uh, and so basically, if you're a listener of the show, you've probably listened to 10 other macro podcasts basically explaining what's been going on there. Uh, you know, I think one of the points that that you made, and I want to get your take on this, is that global bank stocks uh, are selling off right now, even though even though they have little to no direct exposure uh, to U.S. regionals. So, I would love to kind of get your unique spin on what's been going on with Silicon Valley Bank. Sure. So, again, this is another um, sort of perfect reason why uh, market death provides values because every trading day begins in Asia, um, and that doesn't mean every just every trading day. It also means every quarterly rebalance next day, every post options mm. expiry, every single one of those, right? And that also includes every uh, aftermarket, uh, you know, announcement, you know, development or over the weekend sort of thing. And over this weekend, we had kind of like a mini version of like Lehman weekend type of thing where people were kind of uh, locked away in rooms and talking to each other about is there going to be is, is um. Uh, Silicon Valley Bank going to be bought out by who is the Fed going to step in or is the government going to step in to what degree and and so on and so forth. But either way, Monday Asia open is where you see the first market reaction um, of of all that, of the collective sentiment of markets. And so, again, that's why, you know, that's just another example of why why you need to to, uh, have a, you know, a show like this. But um, as far as that's concerned, yeah, so you're absolutely right. Like, so. Uh, bank stocks and yields, <laughs> front end yields have been getting crushed. Um, mm. but, and yeah, the, like some of those moves in the like the the U.S. regionals, uh, like yesterday, were that's uh, kind of really really insane to me. Um, but it is global, and so you have euro stocks, you know, banks down, and then in Japan too, like Topics banks have been down, uh, they're down about fifteen percent or so. MUFG is down 
uh, like, you know, 5%, uh, five to 8%, you know, uh, on a daily basis, um, and is the most heavily traded stock, which is, a, I've never actually really seen that before, uh, for that to exceed, um, you know, even the like levered ETFs and stuff like that, uh, that are usually the most notionally traded in Japan. Um, but they're just getting hammered, absolutely hammered down, right? And why, why should that be happening for, this is a U.S. regional sort of problem that is solved or whatever. This is, why, why should a Japan mega bank with, you know, 180 trillion yen in deposits be getting killed like this? Um, so what I would offer is the following. Coincidental in timing to the um, Silicon Valley Bank sort of blow up at the end of last week, uh, starting Friday, was the March Bank of Japan meeting. The Bank of Japan, which was the uh, Governor Kuroda's last meeting, the Bank of Japan held firm on yield curve control, as in they did not increase the ban on yield curve control, did not hike rates, if you will, as many had expected and positioned them to do. Those who were expecting that, that's basically a, a bond bullish um, outcome from the BOJ. And mm. so you see yields collapse uh, in Japan. And Japan is the JGBs are the world's duration anchor. They have been because of the fact that the Japanese investor uh, has the largest net international investment position, as in them, they they have the most foreign assets. They're largest creditor to the United States, largest foreign creditor to the United States, um, and all of that. And so, what Japanese people do with their mounds of cash that are yielding nothing at home um, matters for foreign you know, bond, bond markets and, and it's kind of yield seeking behavior and so on and so forth. Um, when the BOJ, let's say the, since in December, when they hiked this, the yield curve control band from 25 basis points to 50 basis points, you saw a massive, you know, spike in yields globally from treasuries to boons and all that. And then you also saw a subsequent massive spike in Bank shares, Topics bank shares, and then Eurostox banks as well, right? You saw, like, I think Deutsche Bank was up, like, 8% that day off of that, off of the BOJ, um, you know, like, lifting rates to, from 25 to 50 on the 10-year. Um, and so there was a there, there was global impact, you know, single-stock bank impact from that. And then when the BOJ did not continue to do that, as many had been forecasting, uh, and just held firm at 50 basis points on yield curve control for two, now two meetings in a row, you get the kind of reverse of that. You get the, oh, this isn't like a continuing increase in net interest margin sort of thing. Um, and you have bank st stocks that were up, for, like, you know, topics bank stocks that were up 25, 30% in, within the course of 15 trading days. Now all of that's getting erased. And right now, like if you look at, at MUFG stock price, it basically just looks like an upside down cup. Um, and so it's hmm. just pricing out a lot of what was getting... What, a lot of the expectations that were happening and that's again that's boj related and that happened ex at the exact same time as this larger story uh in the media had taken place and therefore covered over um a major central bank policy meeting and so i think that that's contributing to a lot of this and to what degree i don't know but the fact that this isn't even noticed i'm assuming by many is something that you know this is why i need to to flag like hey there's also this, you know, angle as well, right? Also, like yeah. on yield too, like um, like if you look at the, the BOJ meetings too, uh, ten-year treasury yield, ten-year treasuries, even the front end, two years, uh, uh, uh boon yields as well, um, UK yields and all that, they all spiked when the BOJ um moved 
25 basis points higher on the 10-year JGB yield for yield growth control in December. They all dropped in in uh, mid uh, January when they did nothing, and they all are currently dropping again. So there is like a direct impact from BOJ's actions or inactions. This seems like a continuation of that, but obviously fueled by more. Hello, hello, everyone. Thank you all for listening to On The Margin. Just wanted to give you guys a heads up about a conference that we have coming up in the new year called Permissionless. I'm sure most of you have been there last year. Uh, It is the cultural event of the year. We had over 5,500 people down in Palm Beach. This year, we are moving to Austin, Texas. You know what they say about Texas? Everything's bigger in Texas. Uh, so last year, we had a really great lineup of speakers. We had the two co-founders of Robinhood, Vlad Tenev and Baiju Bot. We had Chris Dixon. We had some of the folks that have been on the show a whole bunch of times, Jim Bianco, Dan Tapiero. Just a phenomenal lineup of speakers, and you can expect the same this year. If you use Margin 10, you will get 10% off on a ticket. Again, that's Margin 10, because I love you guys so much. Click the link at the bottom of the show notes. Hope to see you there in person. Yeah. So basically just to, you know, and I want to dig into this idea of the BOJ being kind of the last anchor for duration, but basically if I understood you correctly, it's kind of a net interest margin story, right? And the the BOJ kind of makes that a, a global thing. Over in the United States, we've got a net interest margin story when it comes to banks because the the collective wisdom on Wall Street is that in, or, in order to keep their deposits, which are going to flee from uh, bank deposits into something like money market funds, which offer much higher yields, banks are going to have to raise the, the amount of yield that they pay to their, their depositors, and that's going to crush profitability. Um, so I want to kind of dig into this idea with you, Weston, about the, the, the Bank of Japan as being a duration anchor, which honestly, I've heard that a lot of times, and I get it, I think, at a pretty high level. But I want, uh, if you could just break that down for the listeners. And then, you know, I, I'd love to get your take on kind of this new regime that we've got in the Bank of Japan, uh, because Honestly, this I feel like would have been the biggest story in finance globally if it hadn't been for Silicon Valley Bank. But we had a change in the guard, right, from Kuroda, who's been the the governor for a long period of time, uh, to the new guy. So, could you just kind of break break that concept down of uh, you know last anchor for duration, and then talk about the regime shift over in Japan? Indeed, I will. Uh, and Mike, just uh, to, to plug, uh, that is actually the topic of the first debut episode of <laughs> of uh, Market Depth. Market um, Depth, so- yeah. Yeah. We should have also, guys, this episode is live today. We we didn't make that clear. The episode is live, so you can get the link in the show notes. You can also find Weston or me on Twitter or Blockworks. We're going to be pushing it, but you should definitely, basically, as soon as you're done listening to, to Weston and I talk right now, you should go over and listen listen to this episode. Right. Um, so uh, I'll, I'll address those two. Let me just, um, before I forget, just one more force uh, driving yields down uh, that mm. people might be kind of overlooking. So I, my background is um, I trade listed derivatives, futures and options uh, at Goldman Tokyo. Um, and so right now is actually quarterly expiry and therefore roll for JGB futures. Uh, that was on Monday, last trade date for March to June. Um, the Bank of Japan had, and I won't get into too much detail, but had basically put in a whole bunch of measures that made th- their... The JGB 10-year, especially the 10-year yield um, is, or the 10-year securities are, uh, yielding securities are really, really messed up right now. Like, you know, look, there's a kink in the, in the JGB curve because there's a lot of concentrated buying. But if you go from issue to issue, like 10-year JGB issue issuance number 368 versus number 369 or whatever it is that are like separated by like, you know, one was issued three months within, you know, one another, right? Um, so if you look at like just the generic 10-year JGB yield over the last two, three days, JGB yield's been slashed by more than half. Right now, the, the, the generic JGB yield is sitting below 
the uh, December pre-yield curve control lift. It's at, you know, like uh, it's below 25 basis points. Um, but so, but if you look at it from an issue to issue basis, the 10-year JGB yield on uh, no, number 369, issuance number 369 has a uh, 32 basis point yield. Uh, number 368, the one before it, is currently, this is a tenured, another 10-year JGB yield, is currently yielding negative 0.2. So 10-year hmm. JGBs, depending on what you're looking at, but there are 10-year JGBs that are currently yielding in negative territory. So hmm. there is that as well. And it's also, it's a function of the Bank Japan owns like all of the cheapest to deliver, like when you're short um, futures and you hold that to uh, to maturity, you are expected to deliver physical, you know, uh, JGBs. JGBs don't exist in the market anymore because the Bank of Japan has sucked up all the supply. And so they own over 100% of a lot of issuances. These are the cheapest to deliver issuances. These are the ones that they have, the short futures positions have to uh, deliver and they're uh, unable to do so or they're scrambling to do so. And that's why you're getting insane. You have, you have a negative yield on a 10-year JGB mm -hmm. currently as we stand right now. So uh, that's the yield story. It's not so much as much as the, the two-year that's making insane sort of moves as well. Um, so mm -hmm. I just wanted to mention that as well. But um, uh, yeah, with regards to, um, you asked me about the BOG leadership change. Yeah. Yeah. I would love to just kind of break that down because again, I think this would have been kind of the leading story globally in the financial world. We had Kuroda, you know, who's been at the helm over there for such a long period of time. And now we've got the new guy, Ueda, right? So can you just kind of describe the, just what's going on over there and the significance for listeners who might be unaware? Sure. Japanese investors. Okay. And people, when they say like uh, Japan flows, they think, they tend to think of the, like the BOJ or the, the government. And yes, the, you know, I guess the, the the government through its pension funds and all that, the public pension funds hold a, a ton of foreign securities. But um, when we're talking about buy and selling behavior, um, like 2022, there's record selling out of JGB or out of uh, US treasuries from the Japanese, which therefore like exploded yields higher and so on and so forth. Um, that's, that's the private sector. It's not the government doing it, doing anything. Right. So the, just to keep like those, those, those are very distinctive things that people need to keep in mind. Um, so the reason the duration anchor is because of that very fact, the J Japan corporates, households, you know, I insurance companies, uh, banks or whoever, if you have a pancake flat yield curve, if you have the, the bank of Japan who is turning the 10-year yield, which is supposed to be far enough out on the curve that it's the market forces are supposed to determine where that is, if they then made that a policy rate via yield curve control, saying we are explicitly going to pin down the 10-year yield, uh, the JGB yield, at around zero with certain like band limitations, um, you have a pancake flat yield curve. You have a negative yield on the front end of the policy rate, and you have a 10-year JGB that can kind of fluctuate at, you know, between 25, 50 basis points or whatever it is. It's a pancake flat yield curve. And there are trillions in cash uh, from Japanese investors, from Japanese households and all that, that are in need of yields. Elderly society, it's, you know, um, it's, it's aging, and it's there's no yield at home. And so they deploy the, that capital overseas to Australia, to Europe, to the UK, to wherever, to the U.S. Treasury market, to CLOs and to horrendous like you know like credit products and all, all that too, uh, and anything and everything in between. So um, when JGBs are now yielding something, as in if JGB yields go up, that's kind of the anchor getting lifted. But uh, absent that, you know, and still with the lid on JGB yields, 
it is an anchor to the rest of the global, you know, sort of fixed income universe because that capital is now being pushed out overseas, capping yields everywhere else. It's indirect yield curve control and everything else is basically what it is. So that's okay. Let me see. So let me see if I can, if I understood that correctly. So basically, when you've got a pancake flat yield curve over in Japan, uh, what that does is that forces a lot of the money that would have been domestically invested in the Japanese economy out. And that's part of the reason why Japan has such a large foreign investor, like net, uh, I forget the exact terminology there, but why they own so many foreign securities. Yeah, exactly. And so when that money flows out of the United States into other securities like U.S. Treasuries, for example, right, that compresses yields uh, abroad as well. And so a lot of basically like a very important dynamic to understand when it comes to like yields outside of just the United States and Europe and uh, the United States is this kind of Japanese money, pension money really moving into and out of Japan. Is that about correct? Yeah, absolutely. And not just that, but it's also it's, it's corporates, it's and then it's also you know, uh, front-running algos knowing that this flow exists and thereby kind of exacerbating or making it a self-fulfilling prophecy and all that. There's also seasonal things where in the middle of uh, fiscal year end for Japan is the end of March. And mm-hmm. typically, seasonally, you get repatriation back home, you get selling of treasuries, you get selling of, you know, dollars, all that, so they could have, like, cash on the balance sheets to make a very nice year-end sort of earnings presentation for their investors and all that. And then they redeploy everything out uh, in the beginning of um, April is how it usually goes to. But but yeah, it's a it's a it's a huge it's a ma- the Japanese capital is a massive massive force um, in in markets, and so people need to be very much aware of that. It's really by coincidence that I'm here. Like I'd be watching this if I was in South Africa or if I was in Mexico or if I was trading out of Brazil or wherever it is. But mm. yeah. All right. So now talk to me a little bit about you know we've had Kuroda kind of at the lead of the BOJ for such a long period of time. Can you just describe a little bit about, we just had a changing of the guard, right? And Ueda kind of took the reins. Can you just describe the significance of that? And then after that, I'm going to ask you about a rising CPI in Japan as well, and whether or not that's going to have an impact on the dynamic that we just described. Sure. Uh, so I just, uh, so again, uh, first episode of um, my show will be uh, covering the Kuroda legacy, so I won't get too much in-depth. Um, yeah. But- you gotta leave the listeners a little something for Mark yeah, here. Yeah. So yeah, this will be a nice little preview. Yeah, and also there's gonna be much less of my my face in the in the uh, episode. So at least there's that. <laughs> um, but uh, so Kuroda is, in my view, the most consequential central banker in kind of our modern era, if you will, from the from the let's say post GFC era. Okay, mm. um, he's been around for so he's outlasted all the other central bankers that are currently here. Outlasted, as in like they're on term limits. But Corona has had an unprecedented, never been done before second term. Uh, so he's been here for ten years. He's overlapped with the end of Bernanke, just to put things in perspective. Bernanke, Mario Draghi, um, you know, Mark Carney, and all them. Um, and he is actually still technically governor. He just had his last policy meeting, but that handover is happening to uh, the incoming governor, Ueda, who is currently a college professor. Well, I don't know, currently to the state, but. Um, so uh, why does that matter? Well, C- Governor Kuroda, so the Bank of Japan in general is um, is basically the the central bank, the modern central bank for developed markets, including very much including the, the uh, Fed and the ECB. Um, it's the central bank monetary policy experimentation laboratory. So for, hmm. you know, like this is not Japan's choice or anything. This is not, but Japan leads the rest of the 
policy, you know, the monetary policy world in policy framework by roughly a decade or so. And that's largely because Japan leads the rest of the world in aging demographics and debt levels by roughly a decade. So the Bank of Japan is forced to do things that are at the time extremely radical and unprecedented and all that. They have to venture out to, you know, kind of experiment with policy and ahead of all the central banks. So they, you know, uh, brought rates down to zero, kept them at, at zero long before uh, the, the Fed ECB all that did um, in, in 2008. They invented QE. Um, they didn't. Well, they weren't the first for negative interest rates, but they currently are the last out of negative interest rates, um, as in they still exist and they. I don't know when they'll be out, but uh, there's that. There's um, yield curve control is is uh, is the Bank of Japan. And by the way, that yield curve control was uh, designed with the help of Mister Ben Bernanke, who, who hmm. after you know his time at the Fed, he flew over to Tokyo. He helped design it because, again, Bank of Japan is literally the monetary policy experimentation laboratory. Uh, this is worth, you know, like, like things kind of like, like get done. And other central banks uh, are watch the BOJ intently and see the consequences and results of their actions, their inactions, their, their experimentation. So uh, that's kind of the general background of the BOJ. Governor Crota took that experimentation sort of theme to like a, a completely new levels. Um, and he basically has thrown a Hail Mary. Um, we're going to just do like a, an undoable level of amount of QE. Um, and look, because otherwise we don't have any timeouts left. We have no, no time left on the clock. And so we have one Hail Mary left. And so he threw that Hail Mary. Um, and you can't buy or more, more than half of your country's sovereign debt market and then control the prices on the other half um, and it caused all of these insane sort of like uh, uh, liquidity and illiquidity and, and, and market dysfunction sort of dysfunctioning sort of uh, occurrences to happen uh, and then unwind that. There's no QT in Japan. There's no unwinding in Japan. Um, so, you know, we're kind of stuck here with, with that. And so he has irreversible policies. So just because the guy is gone, it doesn't mean that incoming guy gets like this whole slew of like options to choose from like what can i do like no you are stuck in there's no clean <laughs> slate you're stuck in the same like you you have the same like it's so yeah. it's hilarious to hear people who say like kuroda is trapped and, and cornered at the same time they'll say uh ueda can do this and that like no they, it's one or the other right so um so so yeah so i think that that's that's really key one thing else to uh, um i'll mention too about, about Kuroda. so there's like people who know me who, who follow me uh they'll they know me for like i make a lot of memes about Kuroda because he's always giggling and stuff like that and he's a very memeable sort of character um and, and which which means that i that him be god i feel like kind of like lo- late night talk show hosts must feel when trump left and they're like oh we don't have material anymore ah. but uh but with uh Kuroda, i think that um his giggling and all that that might seem amusing or whatever, but that's actually kind of a very significant, serious thing. Um, he has like never buckled under, he's never pivoted or anything like that, never buckled under pressure. He takes live fire like I've never seen before. Um, and that's really important because I say like, instead of giggling and all that, if he like ever looked nervous, had his voice kind of shake or like his like had a drop of sweat roll, roll down his cheek as he's talking about, uh, we will remain firm at 25 basis points and you'll cover. Then the, the shorts are just going to come in and destroy. So, mm-hmm. um, so that presentation part really matters. You know, you're the public face of the central bank. The next guy doesn't have that. Nobody has what Kuroda has, but the next guy is especially bad at that. 
Um, and so just from that, and again, that's that's something that really has like it, it can't be overstated how important that is that presentation, that confidence, that exuding confidence part, um, and selling the policy. And so the next guy, uh, he lacks that to a level that's way below any public figure that you'll see. Um, that's that's really scary. Mm. So kind of walk me through here, uh, Weston, because basically what I heard you just say is that there has been irreversible policy, basically, in terms of this just wildly negative uh, real rates of of interest. And they can't walk this back, right, for a whole number of reasons. And by the way, it's a little bit scary to hear you say that because it seems like we're on the same path right over here in, in the Western world of, of Japan. Now, w- walk me through what happens here when inflation, when if and when inflation starts to pick up. Because from my understanding, we've got a core uh, reading of about four point three percent. I think was the last one. Um, and you know, when when we started to see inflation heat up in the United States, admittedly, it took the Fed a little bit longer than I think some of us might have liked for them to react. But eventually, react they did, and that's been the major story of twenty twenty two and thus far in twenty twenty three as well. So, you know, walk me through. It, it's it seems like we've kind of got a what an unstoppable force and an immovable object right we've got an immovable object in the force of japanese monetary policy but then we've got the unstoppable force in the form of inflation so what happens when those two things butt heads fantastic question and uh i would like you to tell the japanese officials and government and not just at the bank of japan but the government itself and the japanese media and public that there is a forehandle in japan cpi because i don't Mm -hmm. think that they got that message literally and here's what I mean by that. If you listen to, and I've done hours and hours and hours of this, if you listen to like the hearings of um, of the incoming governor, Ueda, his lower upper house, basically the parliament, parliament hearings, mm-hmm. like the kind of Senate and House confirmation hearings, if you will, which are supposed to be kind of like a breeze, right? But the way that the government like poses questions, talks about inflation, and then Kuroda's press conference uh, at the, you know, by, by media and all that, um, his final press conference, are all kind of, they all talk as if like there is no two percent inflation that has been exceeded in Japan? Like really, like they they'll say like Governor Kuroda. So why you know now that it's your last meeting, why do you think that you failed to achieve two percent inflation? Of course, CPI is up four point three percent, but they talk as if like not only has it not like been above it, but it's never been above it, and it's like miles away, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so. That that is that might seem insane to Western people, but the thing is that I kind of do agree with what they're thinking is because what the thing is it's not like you just hit a two a two percent like print once and then you just unwind you can stop doing it right. What they need to see is like actually entrenched inflation, if you will. They need to see um, that this is not transitory. That's a real term that would exist in Japan. Only in Japan would that be actually real, because Japan is like you and I are talking about, like uh, that uh, uh, that podcast, um, uh, hardcore history, um, the supernova of the East. Japan uh, is is like everyone else, only more so, right? Uh, so, God, Dan Carlin is is the best. He's he really, he's got to be the greatest. Yeah, he he absolutely Sorry. is. Um, but mm. but with Japan, it, it really is such an enigma. It's so different. I always call it kind of the, the North Korea of the developed world, of the developed democracies, um, because it's so like <laughs> like strangely insulated in like weird different ways. So Japan inflation is just very like uh, the deflation to get out of that was like kind of almost impossible to do. Kuroda did successfully get uh, out of that, but inflation is yeah, it might be at four percent, but 
um, it's expected to come back down below 2% by in this fiscal year. Uh, and so therefore, you don't blow up the balance sheet to 120% of GDP, which by the way is twice this, uh, the size of the next run up, which is the ECB at 60%. Um, so they have a massive amount of QE. You don't buy up like half the, the JGBs outstanding. You don't do all of these measures, but start buying equity, you know, the equity market and all that kind of thing, just to see like, uh, you know, like a, a tap into like above the 2% target while global inflation is nearly double that in Japan. Clearly, this is a, a global phenomenon. It's not just a strictly Japan phenomenon. If it were just strictly Japan, then fine. But if it's not, then we have to maintain this. If, if this is what they believe to get you know uh, Japan to generate self-sustained inflation, this uh, virtue, this virtuous uh, cycle of inflation, all that kind of thing. If they if that's what they're going for, yeah, this isn't it. This is a false flag. This is like a, a false read. So, uh, but but it is crazy to to think of that in, that, in those terms. But the reason that's important is because the Bank of Japan is not adjusting or not adjusting yield curve control or policy at the moment based on mm. CPI. It's nothing to do with CPI. Everyone else would think that it's based on CPI and they'll think like Japan is now finally reacting to uh, inflation, all that. Yield curve control has got to go um, and all these things are going to happen. That's not the case. The, Japan is adjusting yield curve control because Japan is uh, has severe bond market dysfunction. That's what they're making their decisions based on. Nothing to do with CPI. So anyone who's shorting JGBs with a CPI-based mind frame, you were right for the wrong reasons in December. And you got you learned that lesson in January and March when they didn't continue to exit this policy, because yeah. frankly, there really is no exit of this policy. What's going on, everybody? Thank you for listening to On the Margin. I just wanted to take a quick moment to let you know about a very special offer that we have coming out of BlockWorks Research. Now, many of you will probably be familiar with our platform, but BlockWorks Research is the most blue chip spot to get research, data, governance, models, and a whole lot more about the leading DeFi protocols in the space. I've leaned on our analysts time and time again to explain complicated concepts going on in DeFi to me like I'm five years old. They can do the same for you. If you invest in DeFi or are just interested in it, it is an absolute no-brainer. As a listener of On The Margin, and to say thank you all for listening to the show, you can use Margin 10 for a 10% discount, and that gives you access to everything, which would be weekly in-depth reports, live data, all of that good stuff. So again, that's code MARGIN10 for a 10% discount. Link is in the show notes. Sign up now. Thank you later. Yeah, that's what I, you know, that's what I kind of keep going back to, which is, I mean, look at what we just experienced over here in the United States, right? The We hiked interest rates from, you know, basically zero to about 5%. And we thought for a period of time, everyone was very surprised that there was nothing that, you know, quote unquote, broke. And as it turns out, the some of the stress that existed in the banking system was that, yeah, you know, when they lowered yields to, to zero and flooded the system with money, then banks had to go out and buy a bunch of bonds at generational highs. And now as that is reversed, right, the the US, the treasuries that are collateralizing our banking system are under enormous amount of stress. I can't even, you would have to imagine that that dynamic in Japan is basically that same dynamic magnified by at least an order of magnitude because rates have been kept that much lower for that much longer. And the BOJ owns, what, some crazy percentage of the JGB market in general. So it just seems, you know, like letting letting uh, kind of market forces return to the bond market would just be absolute chaos at this point. Yeah, if you so if you let, you know, uh, if you just ripped off the band-aid and let yield curve control go and so there's nothing so market forces determine where a 250% debt to GDP economy where their bonds trade. Right. 
they're not going to be at 400 basis points below the <laughs> United States tr- a treasury can borrow for eight weeks out. Okay. <laughs> like uh, on, on yeah. tenure. Uh, here's the thing with Japan's, um, you know, I guess in, in the, sh- there's, there's two forces and, and Mike Howell and I talk about this all the time. And, and you guys have been flagging this with your guests uh, on, on Blockworks as well, but uh, things uh, that can happen are look, look, when you have basically illiquidity, right. When you have so much, um, of the bond market that is illiquid from a trading perspective, you get severe volatility. That's why you have, you know, swings in the two-year yield right now are, I think a lot of that is a function of kind of just illiquidity in the markets in, in general. And you can see that because that is uh, an ex- a sort of, you know, more extreme version of that is happening in Japan in the 10-year US, uh, the 10-year uh, uh, yields in, in Japan are moving like you know, like I said, they move from fifty basis points to some of them are now trading in, in negative territory. Um, so the full like nominal yield is gone in the last two or three days. So you can talk about like you know 60, 60 basis points down in two years, which is a big deal. But in the worst, swings are happening in in the in the JGB market as well, and that's a function of just a lack of supply and like bid offer uh, sort of you know um, size out there and, and available to trade. Um, so when you have a market that's that fragile. If you suddenly just like remove, like pull the rug from underneath it, like they did in December, you're gonna find yourself in a massive, you know, sort of destructive situation. So in December, yield curve control is basically it is an explicit central bank put. We will buy an unlimited amount of JGBs at price level X, 25 basis points, no matter what. Come hell or high water, that's where it is. It's an explicit central bank put. There are models, there are risk models based on that. This is the JDBs and up until December in 2022 were, were the safe haven amongst the safe haven bonds. Every other bond, basically, if you if you you know if you bought them, you get dis, you get crushed in, in 2022. BTPs, UK gilts, US Treasuries, JDBs had a like a floor on it. So what happens when you take that floor out or you just like you know double the yield? That's gonna create sort of you know massive dis- destruction of of value as you kind of like see with like a SVP sort of situation. So I wonder how many of these books are you know uh, that are that are just getting crushed right now in terms of their unrealized losses, uh, mark to market losses on the JGB portfolios. Um, mm. And uh, in addition to that, in a kind of a longer term sort of thing. Okay, so Japan is the most indebted country in the world. Debt burden is is going up. It's getting increasingly more elderly, which means that tax. Contributors are turning to tax, you know, uh, paying consumers, yeah, and 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 so on and so forth. And so, uh, Japan is not going to be able to pay back the principal on its debt. And currently, one quarter of uh, the of Japan's budget goes to servicing its debt. So, if that's the case, and they're servicing their debt, one quarter of the budget goes to servicing debt at rock bottom rates, right, at artificially low rates. What happens when you bring them to the yields up to just one percent, right? So four x that, that what it was at yield curve control uh, before. Uh, like they're not all it's not this simple. They're all different maturities and durations. But basically, what it's like a hundred percent of the budget goes to just servicing the debt, right? So Japan needs to do this. There is no other sort of way. You they they cannot let borrowing costs uh, for the Japanese government go up, lest they want to not have a country that can operate like like a normal developed country so yeah wow that's shocking i did not realize that it was that high 25 percent of the, the the annual budget going towards 
just repaying debt. That is crazy. Now, doing so on a doing so with rock bottom rates, <laughs> rock bottom rates. Yeah, lowest in the world. But you know, here maybe you could also connect this for for listeners, Weston, because we've talked about on the show, and and Brent Johnson has done a great job of illustrating this kind of the the relationship in between a country's bond market and their currency, right? And especially when you have inflation, generally, maybe not in Japan. That's a that's a new dynamic, but. The, the general dynamic is you kind of have to pick one, right? If you want to save the, the bond market, you kind of end up sacrificing the currency. Now, I think a couple of months ago, I don't have the exact timeline on this, but we saw the the yen, which has historically been kind of one of the safe haven currencies, fall precipitously against the dollar before it sort of recovered. So can you kind of explain that dynamic for listeners? Yes, sir. Um, I mean, he's uh, I saw that interview, I think, like, because towards the, I guess, end of last year like late last year is when you did it with uh brent johnson yeah Mm -hmm. so he's right about um fundamentally uh, a central bank can't do both right you can't uh support both your your bond market and your currency market um it's one at the expense of the other so that's what yield curve control was right so you have basically rising rate environment globally right and that jgbs are not immune to a rising yield environment so the beginning of 2021 or, or beginning of 2020 you have Fed funds at like nothing. Uh, you have the S&P and NASDAQ were still not in bear market territory. And you have U.S. Treasury yields at like 1% or so. Then you see global yields start to rise uh, very sharply, including JGB yields. JGB yields at that point, by the way, were like around zero as well. Um, JGB yields, however, on the way, got stopped at 25 basis points yield curve control cap. They do how do how do they cap yields? They the Bank of Japan offers to buy and actually buys an unlimited amount of JGBs in order to cap uh, yields. Meanwhile, while U.S. Treasury yields, let's say ten-year U.S. Treasury yields, continue to go up as JGB yields are capped, the ten-year the the U.S. and Japan yield spread widens as that yield spread widens. Sort of one of the kind of basic um, fundamentals of currency price action is yield differentials between two countries. You sell the lower yielding currency. Uh, to buy a higher yielding uh, currency, or you fund with a lower yielding currency to buy a higher yielding currency, currency called carry trade. So as that tenure or you know whatever uh, maturity, but usually tenure U.S. Treasury to JGB yield spread widens as U.S. Treasuries uh, yields continue to, to go up. USD JPY continues to go up as that continues to happen. That's dollar yen going up. That's yen getting more weak against the dollar down to multi decade levels. And down to uh, what thirty three percent at its lowest, worst performed currency in the world, um, mm. and one point worse than the Turkish lira. Um, and so, so it's it's supposed to be one at the expense of the uh, at the expense of the other. However, 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 here's the thing: uh, Japan is again unlike every, everyone else, right? So the reason that shorting JGBs is called the widowmaker trade is because right. fundamentally, yeah, you should you should be shorting the hell out of JGBs. Like the, the Japan, like this what's they're worthless. Like they're not gonna you're not gonna be paid back on your principal. You're gonna lose hundred cents on the dollar. That's what it should be, right? But that was a very bad trade because you know the BOJ is able to lift above economic gravity and like like a kind of deflect economic economic gravity. And in the same way, what I was saying was that Japan can probably um, sustain the both uh, the supporting the JGB market as well as the FX intervention supporting the uh, yen at the same time for longer than we think. So yeah, although you know it doesn't make sense fundamentally, Japan is kind of you know it's this outlier that can kind of break the rules of economic gravity and macro gravity, and therefore 
shorting the yen at like 150 and so all that that's what i was saying at the time was that might be the new widowmaker trade because the ministry of finance might come in and smack dollar yen down five yen uh five handles you know in, in a in a moment in a moment's so yeah, Weston, we're we're uh, you know this was intended to be kind of a, a teaser, right, for for market depth. So we we don't want to give everything away for for listeners. And guys, you should absolutely go over and listen to this show. But I do I do just want to briefly ask you in our last couple of minutes here. We're you know right before we started recording, US CPI came out. It basically came out right within expectations. But you know I'm just kind of looking at some of the initial reactions. We had crypto take off like a rocket ship, right, and and explode. We've also got the Nasdaq. I'm just looking at it trading at. Uh, it's up about 1.7%, you know, and keep in mind, this is, you know, just, uh, just about an hour after CPI went live. Uh, but I'd love to kind of get your, your take here and, and how you think this is going to impact things. Sure. Um, so that's, it's a, it's a really interesting time for CPI to come out because, you know, given everything like, is the Fed going to, what's right. the Fed going to do now, right? Um, like Nomura put out a call earlier today saying that the Fed's going to cut rates of the next meeting, next week. I saw that. Um, yeah. Yeah, that, that's that's quite a call to make. Um, here, here's what I'll say: the the lack of re- like again, the lack of reaction relative to right. I mean, the the CPI number it's not like it was like that crazy. It's more or less in line, but still, you won't you always get positioning on both sides. But uh, so much activity has happened, um, and so much you know, kind of positioning has been. Sh- already reset and and sh- you know shorts have gotten squeezed out of like uh, futures and, and all that and race futures that and currencies and all that so it's i think that right now like y- there's no way to look at the cpi uh release and then the market reaction and be able to get any sort of clean read at all we're in the midst of something much broader and bigger that's taking kind of uh that's taking over right now that any sort of market reaction might be an unwind of a previous trade put on yesterday with this sort of, you know, Silicon Valley Bank, regional bank thematic mm. sort of pivot theme in mind. And so it might not be anything related to that. So I like this is there's so much background noise and, and it's not noise, by the way, it's very real. But there's so much kind of, you know, background things to put in context uh, leading up to this, that this is far from typical. Like, here's what the market did in relation to CPI. So I, I really couldn't tell you. Um, but what I will say, however, is that uh, if Jay Powell um, and company wants to maintain their credibility and not start a panic, they will go on and lift their Fed funds rate another 25 basis points or whatever it is. But you don't like hold, you don't like, stop, you know, pause monetary policy after you just were in Congress saying like, yeah, we're going to you know, be very hawkish. And you certainly don't start cutting rates uh, right now, lest you want to exacerbate a panic. Don't do what the BOJ did um, and, uh, you know, make a policy mistake uh, from December. So yeah. uh, that's what I, that's, that's my thoughts. So I don't know what yours are, but. I will tell you this. I don't have much more sophisticated thoughts other than I would not want to be in Jay Powell's seat right now, because, you know, I totally agree with you in order to maintain credibility. I think you've got to at least, at least continue to raise raise by like 25 basis points. It's been absolutely wild to watch the expectation shift from, uh, you know, at one point it was, you know, there was a 30% chance that the market, that he was going to raise 50 basis points. Then there was, I think at peak, like an 85% chance, you know, after we got the hot, uh, what was the economic data that got released last week? I'm, I'm blanking, but we got some hot data last week and, and the rate increased to like 80%. And then uh, now that's basically completely... Yeah, it's completely flipped. And, th- and this morning we had Liz Warren sending out a tweet, uh, basically excoriating Jay Powell and putting the the stress in the banking system at his feet, which is he's a dangerous man. 
that's, just, that's what she said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dangerous man. Yeah, exactly. Now I've, you know, she. Yep. So anyway, so I, I think she's a pretty good. She's very. She's very honest. good at, at making like headlines and and like. Kind I think of she is too. She's I a think great she's song. a pretty. And I think she's actually a decent barometer for sort of the zeitgeist of of this administration. So that that's what I'll kind of say. And I I'll just end it by saying I I would not, I do not envy his position and the decision she, that he has to make. Yeah. Here here's here's what I'll say though. I also don't envy the positions of other central bankers. And so again, just to wrap up and to kind of plug my <laughs> my show. Yeah, please. Yeah. Um, I want people to know first of all that uh, yes, I'm kind of most known for being a, a baggage pan expert. There's no such thing as a baggage pan expert because BOJ is, you know, just completely uh, go- going like day by day, and so BOJ themselves are not BOJ experts. Uh, that said, I'm not uh, strictly looking at BOJ only. I look at. China. I look at the PBOC, the people, uh, the the amount of liquidity they do. The China leadership change. There's currently, you know, a lot of reshuffling going on within the upper ranks of um, the CCP. Uh, there are, you know, I'm looking at things like the semiconductor space out of Taiwan and of Korea, um, and how that impacts because that has global impact as well, geopolitical impact, inflation impact. Well, you know, like so on and so forth. I'm looking at Australia for like commodities, um, mining, all that kind of activity. Um, Singapore, Hong Kong, with regards to like finance. So like the entire region is is is, is in play here. And I'm not just looking at circuit Japan. And increasingly, much more and more market drivers are coming are originating out of Asia. And so that's why you know you need to be aware. So that's so there's two kinds of, of ways that I'm gonna do the show. One is gonna be mostly like today's market price action. Here's what happened overnight. Here's what you need to know. Um, and here's how to cut through the noise. The other one being kind of deep dives into bigger themes. Uh, this first episode being a bit deeper dive into Corona himself. Um, but those are that's why it's you know market depth. But uh, but those are the two sort of things. So I just want, want people to know that's like I'm not like a just a, like a BOJ only person or Japan focused only person right now yeah well said well said weston and i personally can't wait i'm going to be tuning into the first episode myself and uh listeners if you've been listening to on the margin highly highly recommend that you tune in and listen to to market depth uh unfortunately weston that is that is all the time we have so guys after you're done with this show here go over and listen to the first episode of market depth i know i'm going to be a regular listener weston thanks very much for coming on the show my friend thanks so much looking forward to it